If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them, if you haven't already, uh, to the book of Nehemiah there in the Old Testament. Um, Nehemiah is kind of the second half or volume two or part B of one larger book uh, of the Old Testament called Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I know that in our uh, Bibles today, those are separated into two different books, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, but in Jewish Bibles, most of the time they would appear together. They are sister works. In the same way that First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles are all two parts of one work, so also is Ezra, Nehemiah. And tonight we're looking at the second half of that in Nehemiah. Now, you have uh, hopefully a little note sheet that you got as you walked in. If not, you can, uh, you can get up and grab one off a stool by the back door. Um, as we're working through this. And these are just some uh, some of the notes that I put together to help me. Uh, and I just like to give them to you so you can stick them in your Bible, file them away, do whatever you want with uh, to help you maybe in your own study of these different books of the Bible as you pursue studying them on your own. And as we work through these things, you know that we work through some of the particulars of the book first as we're trying to get a big picture view of it. And then we dive more into the details. So we start first with those bigger picture things related to the author. Now, there's no stated author of Nehemiah, like there are of you know, Paul's letters. We call them Paul's letters because Paul names himself there in them. But there's no stated author of the book of Nehemiah. And many scholars believe, and we talked about this when we looked at Ezra all the way back in February, many scholars believe that Ezra, uh, the priest, is the author of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, and Ezra and Nehemiah. But Nehemiah is interesting because it seems that large portions of Nehemiah were taken probably from Nehemiah's own personal memoirs. A lot of what takes place in this book comes through the voice, the first person voice of Nehemiah himself. The events of Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books together, take place uh, between 538 and 445 B.C. Now remember, when we're talking about B.C., before the birth of Christ, everything is counting down. And so, you know, the numbers go from big to small, and so you've got to get your, just got to get your head into that realm of thinking. The numbers get smaller, not bigger. But these events take place between uh, 538 and 445 B.C. Most of what takes place in Nehemiah takes place between 445 uh, and maybe even 433, 432 B.C. And the final writing of the book, the final composition of Ezra and Nehemiah, probably did not take place until after the closing, the very closing events of the book of Nehemiah, after Nehemiah returns back to Jerusalem from Persia after being gone for maybe 10 or 12 years, and, uh, and, and then things were then finalized probably around 433, between 433 and 424 B.C. Now, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, neither do I pretend to be one, nor do I play one on TV, so I am depending upon uh, other, other Old Testament scholars to help me with some of that dating there. Uh, if we could summarize Nehemiah just very briefly, and this is actually one of the Old Testament books that we can summarize pretty briefly, uh, there's kind of one consistent storyline, and it would be, if we were to summarize it, we would do it this way. Nehemiah tells the account of Nehemiah returning from Persia to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and reform the worship of the people of God. His life is a model of godly leadership, and his faith is a model of total dependence upon God to do what is difficult with conviction and God's uh, conviction about God's ability to do so. There are a few themes in the course of Nehemiah, though tonight we uh, will be looking uh, well at a few. But some of the major themes in this book are these: first of all, we see the importance of prayer in the life of a leader. Uh, this is one of the first things that we'll look at here in just a moment. Nehemiah is a man of devoted, concerted prayer. The guy prays literally all the time, it seems, in this book. And, uh, and we're meant to see that and to understand that. Secondly, we see perseverance in the face of opposition. 
Nehemiah is going to lead the Jews who returned to Jerusalem from exile in Persia to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. You'll recall in the book of Ezra, the temple was rebuilt, but even as the temple was rebuilt, the wall around the city still lie in ruins and the city still uh, uh, lay at danger from uh, threat of those that would seek to uh, maybe overthrow it from outside. Uh, Nehemiah and those that he's leading will encounter a good bit of opposition from outside people seeking to keep them from finishing this work. And we see Nehemiah leading the elders of the city, the men there in Jerusalem, to persevere in the face of opposition. Third major theme is this, uh, the confession and repentance of sin for renewed relationship with God. There's a major section in Nehemiah where all of the people gather together to confess their sin corporately, seek renewal in their relationship with God that they might walk in faithfulness with Him. As we look at Nehemiah in the scope of redemption history, uh, redemption history taking place in four parts as we've talked about in this series, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, creation, that first act that we see mostly played out in uh, uh, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis as God is creating all that is in the world, the fall taking place in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they become sinners, all, uh, all of their offspring forever are sinful from birth predisposed to rebel against God, and yet God does not leave humanity made in His image to to live forever separated from Him. God creates and puts into place a plan to redeem His people, to rescue people from their sin, and that redemption plan is ultimately consummated. It comes to its climax in the person of Jesus. And we have the final act of redemption history, which is consummation, where God will, at the end of time, Uh, send his son Christ to return, to call the church to himself, to set all things right, to take those who by faith in Christ are united to him, to live with him forever in heaven, and to send those who by their their own willful rebellion against God, never trusting Christ, to spend eternity in hell. That is the redemption history in, in broad scope. Uh, Now, there in your note sheet, you have those four acts, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and little arrows in between as we kind of see in Scripture one leading to the other to the other all the way through. Uh, Thinking about where the book of Nehemiah lands, I would, as we've done this uh, several times with a lot of these books of the Old Testament kind of in between, um, I would circle or maybe place it somewhere in the area of that, that arrow toward redemption and redemption, because much of what's taking place Uh, there in Nehemiah, is pointing the people to the hope that they have in God. That God has rescued his people from exile in in Babylon, then Persia. He's brought them back to be his people, and he is forming them again to be a people for his own purposes. Now, as we look at Nehemiah, and I have a typo in my notes. I hope you don't have it in your notes, um, but you might. You may have Ezra in place of Nehemiah here uh, in terms of reading Nehemiah and uh, and how we ought to read it. But uh, Nehemiah, again, falls into the genre of historical narrative, like so many books of the Old Testament, actually all of the books of the Old Testament that we've read up to this point. A biblical historical narrative very often teaches, uh, uh, teaches uh, principles, teaches obedience, teaches what it looks like to, to follow God or, or, or shows what faithlessness looks like through story rather than through, through direct instruction. And so to understand what the author is teaching us in Nehemiah and books like it, we need to understand the plot, we need to understand the themes, we need to understand the characters of the story. And so as you study biblical historical narrative like Nehemiah, like Ezra, like Uh, Samuel, Chronicles, Kings, you'll want to ask yourself some of these questions along the way. First of all, what is this text teaching me about God and his character? Who is God? What is he like? 
Second, what does this text reveal about God's relationship to Israel or to the church? Third, what does this text reveal about how God deals with people? And then once you've begun to understand those uh, questions, you can begin to apply that text to your own life, understanding who God is, how he deals with his people, um, and, and what that means for me as a follower of Jesus. Now, I've not put, made an outline of Nehemiah for you this time uh, because uh, it, it's, it's pretty simple to follow the story as you go through. But I did uh, place an outline of events, a timeline of events uh, there in your note sheet. And, uh, and you can see that the timeline, it, it, uh, Nehemiah takes place chronologically. There are some books uh, in the Old Testament that seem to jump around. It's hard to date things, but not so with Nehemiah. Everything moves very linearly, uh, very directly uh, through time there. And so we see in 445, 444 BC, Hanani uh, bringing Nehemiah a report from Jerusalem saying that the walls are in ruins. It's a mess. Then in the first First month of 445 BC, Nehemiah will approach Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. In four, uh, later in that same year, uh, Nehemiah will arrive in Jerusalem to inspect the walls. In the sixth month of that year, so just five months later, the wall is completed. So the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem actually takes place in a relatively short amount of time. And when you think about the feat of construction that is building a wall around a whole city, that's fairly impressive. Uh, in the seventh month of that same year, 445 B.C., pe- the people of Israel gather together um, to confess their sins, to rededicate themselves to the Lord. Uh, the people of Israel will celebrate the Feast of Booths in that same month. They uh, fast and confess their sins uh, there again in the same month. And then Nehemiah will return to Jerusalem after about a 12-year hi- hiatus after he's gone back to Persia to serve in the court of Artaxerxes. He was there in the court of Artaxerxes, the cupbearer to the king, the one who who brought him his cup and the one who likely drank from the cup to make sure it wasn't poisoned first. How would you like to have that job? But he's also a Jew, a Jewish exile who wants to return to his city to rebuild the wall. So Nehemiah reformed. That is the kind of tagline for this book of the Bible. We see God reforming his people as he's, uh, as he's uh, led them to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And he's also reforming not just the people, not just forming them again, but he's reforming their worship. He's changing their worship. He's calling them back to faithfulness. And we see the Israelites respond uh, with obedience to this. Now, there's a lot of Reformation stuff that's going on in Nehemiah, and there we should not conflate the Reformation of the 1500s with the Reformation that takes place in Nehemiah. They aren't the same thing, and they're not entirely uh, similar, although there are some similarities between them. But what rises really to the fore in all of this course of telling the story of Reformation are the people that lead the way, the people that lead Reformation specifically in Nehemiah, but others as well. And so what we find in this book are several principles about what godly leaders look like and what godly leaders do. First is this. We see that godly leaders are prayer leaders. Godly leaders are prayer leaders. This, perhaps more than any other characteristic, defines the person of Nehemiah. We've already said this. And defines this book of the Bible. And Nehemiah is nothing if, he's, if not a praying man and a praying leader. So consider for just a moment the prayer-filled life of Nehemiah. You have your Bibles open. I'll be referencing several uh, chapters and verses. We'll move mostly chronologically through Nehemiah, so there won't be a lot of flipping back and forth. And so you can kind of just follow along. So we find in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, shortly after hearing the news from Hanani that the walls and the gates around Jerusalem still lied in ruins after having been sacked by Babylon, even though Ezra and his crew have rebuilt the temple, the wall is still a mess. 
uh, Nehemiah's first move is not to immediately go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the wall. His first move is to pray, hear his prayer, and maybe read along with me from Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 11. There we hear from the word from the mouth of Nehemiah, as soon as I heard these words, this news about the wall still being destroyed, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, uh, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, speaking of the king Artaxerxes, whom he is going to to ask permission to return to Jerusalem. It's not very much later in chapter 2. There in the presence of the Persian king Artaxerxes, when the, when the most powerful man in the world, Artaxerxes, asks Nehemiah, because Nehemiah is visibly sad before Artaxerxes, having heard that his city still lies in ruins, the most powerful man in the world, the king of Persia, asks Nehemiah, what's the matter? And what do you want me to do to help? Nehemiah's first response is prayer. He shoots up what some have called an, an arrow prayer. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of just like a, 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 a fleeting, very quick shot up to heaven. God, help me here because I don't know what to say. We read in uh, Nehemiah 2, verse, uh, beginning of verse 4, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And here we don't have Nehemiah's prayer recorded, do we? But we do have recorded that he did pray. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Something like, God, help me. I don't know what to say. And so I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah is a man of prayer and all through his life, he is aware of the watchful eye of God and the care of God and the presence of God and all that he is doing. And he prays time and again that God would see, that God would guide, that God would guard his work for God's own glory and for the good of the people. We hear short prayers like, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt. Speaking about those that are oppressing them, trying to stop them from their work. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. And we we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night in Nehemiah 4.4. 4. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people, he prays in 5.19. Remember me, O my God, for good is, are the final words of the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verse 31. What about you? Does it depend upon God and an expectation that he will hear and answer your prayers, character, characterize your life like Nehemiah? Do you believe, like this man, Nehemiah, that God actually cares enough to answer your prayers? The testimony of Nehemiah is exactly this. This is what we see displayed in his life. God does care. God does listen. And he does answer the prayers of his people that are offered in dependence upon him and upon his will. 
This quality of Nehemiah points us ultimately to the quality of God. He is near to his people. God is ready to speak with them. God longs to be near them, to heal them, to provide for them, to put them back together after they they have been scattered and destroyed. And this he does most perfectly, not in Nehemiah, but centuries later in Jesus. What do you need from the Lord? Where are you desperate, like Nehemiah, for God's presence and his help? The response to each of these needs, to each of these desires for everything that we might seek from God, is to go to Jesus, the Son of God, with all the boldness of the leper in Mark 2, who said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And to whom Jesus said, I will be clean. Come to Jesus with your every care and hurt and need. Cast them upon Jesus through prayer and in faith in him who is strong to carry them. For as Peter writes in uh, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Godly leaders are prayer leaders. And God answers prayer perfectly in Christ. God seeks to be near to us in Christ. So, approach God through him. Second, godly leaders we see are resilient Nehemiah will return to Jerusalem from Persia with one primary goal, to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem in order to ensure the protection of the city. Now, they just rebuilt the temple some years before, but there's no way to protect it. There's no wall around the city. So any invading army, any invading party could just come in and ransack the whole place, tear down the temple again. So Nehemiah goes back to rebuild it. And almost as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, he's met by two opponents from among the non-Jewish people that surrounded the land of Israel. And these two guys are named Sanballat and Tobiah. And you'll read a lot about them over the course of Nehemiah. Chapter 2, verse 10, tells us that it displeased them greatly. It displeased uh, Sanballat and Tobiah greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. The task will not be easy for Nehemiah. It will require resilience, it will will require endurance, and it will require focus despite constant attack and constant derision led by these two men who will stop at almost nothing to stop the work being done. But Nehemiah has all these things as a leader, and he has them not by his own strength. He has uh, uh, prayerful ability. He has resilience. He has endurance. He has focus uh, by the strength that God supplies. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, we read this. Then I, Nehemiah, said to them, said to the people of Israel, the nobles, the officials, the priests, and the workers, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of uh, of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the uh, uh, the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, "What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" Then I replied to him, "The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem." Throughout chapters 4 and 6, Tobiah and Sanballat will harass and harangue the Jews who are rebuilding. And they will harass them several different ways. They'll harass them through just straight-up verbal attacks. 
We see this in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He said in the, uh, this is uh, uh, Tobiah. Uh, He said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore this wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was uh, beside him. He said, "Yes, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone walls. So you've got Sanballat and Tobiah jeering and verbally attacking, insulting, trying to discourage those who are building. They go further than just lobbing verbal attacks. They actually go uh, to the point of violent plotting. In chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, we read this. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. It's not enough that Tobiah and Sanballat would lob verbal attacks and insults, making fun of them. They also plot to attack the city, to, uh, to maybe even to fight against these Jews who are rebuilding the wall. It goes further even to the point of murderous conspiracy against Nehemiah. In chapter 6, verse 10, we read from Nehemiah, Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said... Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now Shemaiah himself was in league with Sanballat and Tobiah to try to discourage Nehemiah from what is going on. This becomes, uh, uh, Nehemiah is made aware of this later on, but, but still the threat is there. It's not just insults. It's also threat of war, threat of fighting, and Nehemiah's own life is in danger simply for rebuilding this wall. And yet with all of this oppression, with all of this persecution, with all of this adversarial activity by Sanballat and Tobiah, in every instance, Nehemiah endures the pressure. And by the help of God, he leads the people to press on in spite of the threat. We read in chapter 4, verse 14, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. They're speaking with encouragement to those who are discouraged by the threat from these outsiders. Chapter 4, verse 19, I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. So in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. After all of this, after all of his endurance, out of all, after all of his perseverance, after all of his resilience as a leader by the strength that God supplied to him, we read in chapter 6, verse 15, that the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. I wonder, how does Nehemiah's resilience strike you? Are you brave like he is? Are you courageous like Nehemiah? As Christians, we understand that Jesus displayed a resilience in a way that far surpasses what Nehemiah displayed, far surpasses what even we in our own strength can display. 
Even in the face of a torturous death on a cross, Jesus endured. You want to talk about persecution. You want to talk about opposition. You want to talk about people being adver- acting adversarially toward you. There is no greater example of this than those that jeered, those that mocked, those that threatened, those that murdered Jesus. And yet, with all that was going on around him, Christ pressed forward. Why? Why did he do so? And how can we endure like him in the face of opposition and difficulty that we might face like Nehemiah did? We do so by setting our eyes on him who has called us. Nehemiah sets his eyes, he sets his heart, he sets his mind on God and the call of God on his life to persevere in this task. So when we're surrounded by opposition, when we're surrounded by persecution, when, when we, we are facing adversity in our life, we need to, like the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 too, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus lives to make us resilient in the face of difficulty of all sorts. And not as one who has never gone through persecution. But Jesus does this as one who perfectly endured the worst that the world could throw at him for our sakes and with joy, knowing he was fulfilling God's will. Godly leaders are resilient. Most resilient of all of them is Christ who died for us and was not confined by the grave, but rose again victorious and lives to make us resilient by his strength as well. Third, godly leaders are generous. Chapter 5 of Nehemiah is uh, striking. There we find Nehemiah as the work of the wall is continuing, discovering that many of the nobles among the Jews had been profiting off of the poverty of the common people. They were lending money at interest to those who had no income. They were forcing those who were poorer to mortgage their properties while they themselves, the nobles and officials, were living fat and happy in their paneled houses on the backs of those that were paying interest to them to the loans that they had underwritten. Nehemiah not only confronts this abusive abomination of lending money at interest to an already impoverished people, but he also calls for the nobles' repentance. He says, this is wrong. This is awful. You, you can't do this to your own people. And he goes even further, though. He doesn't just merely call those who are sinning to repent, to correct their, their bad behavior, but he goes further to open his own home and his own purse to provide for those who are in need. Look at chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. We read, moreover, From the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 30th year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table, hear this, 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people." Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now, some of us might be tempted to look at what Nehemiah says here, recounting his generosity to those who are around and, and, and see it as sort of self-serving. 
In our context today, somebody who talks about all the good things that they do is often seen as a fairly selfish, narcissistic, self-serving person. But this is not the case with Nehemiah. We shouldn't read it that way. Instead, we find that godly leaders who know the generosity of God are quick, like Nehemiah, to give generously to others. I'm struck by the very Christ-likeness of Nehemiah. Even though Nehemiah lived nearly five centuries before Jesus, in his generosity, he prefigures the grand generosity of Jesus, who, as Paul says, did not regard his divinity as something to be held onto for his own advantage, but instead he humbled himself to be born as a servant, to be born a human in order to give himself for us. May the generous grace that we've received from God and Jesus inspire us to great generosity like Nehemiah as well. Godly leaders are generous. Fourth, we see that godly leaders lead with God's word. They lead with God's word. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Here in this chapter, after the wall is rebuilt the people gather together to dedicate the wall. It's a good day. It's a day of celebration. And they want to dedicate their work that they've done to the Lord. And there, Ezra, another one of God's leaders and a priest, who we looked at in the book of Ezra several months ago, Ezra brings the book of the law of Moses to read to the people. The law of God through Moses, the word of God, is that word that formed the people of Israel from the start. This same word would reform them as they returned to their homeland. We read in chapter 8, verse 1, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Let me just say that there are no sweeter words for a pastor preacher to hear than the church saying, Pastor, bring the book. Bring the word. Open it up. So if any of you ever say that to me on a Sunday morning before I preach, I will be so happy. So Ezra the priest brought the book, uh, uh, brought the law before the, the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard on the first day there of the seventh month. In verse 8, we read that they read from the book. They read from the law of God clearly. And they, Ezra and the other priests, they gave the sense, which means they were doing interpretation of the word and application of the word. They were doing expository preaching. They were saying what the word of God meant and what it meant for them in that very day, what it meant for their lives. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. See how important it is for these leaders. Now, Nehemiah is not necessarily among these. This is Ezra and the other priests. And yet, they lead with God's word, they open his word, they, tell, they read God's word, and they say this is what it means, and this is how it uh, impacts, this is how it intersects your life, this is what it is calling you to do. This is precisely what expository preaching does. That's a big word, but expository or exposition means simply opening up. All right, so we open up God's word, not just to read it, but also to explain what it means. Sometimes there are years of cultural difference between us and the people uh, in the Bible who received these words for the first time. We need to kind of understand their, their you know, contemporary situation and that sort of thing before we can really understand what the word of God is saying. But we know that the word of God holds true, not just holds truth, but is true. And that if it is true once, it's true always. And the meaning of God's word never changes, though the application may. And this is precisely what Ezra and the priests are doing. They open the book. They read it aloud. They give the sense. They exposit the word so that the people would understand what they were hearing. And they do this for half a day. For like six hours. They're just 
reading God's word and explaining it. And their response, which is led by Nehemiah, is worship. They worship according to the word of the Lord. On the next day, after that first day of reading, they would reinstitute celebration of what is called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. For the first time in decades, they are celebrating this. Now, the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, was a feast during which the people of God would live in tents outside of their homes in order to remember that wilderness wandering period after the Exodus to remember the faithfulness of God, to uh, keep his people, to provide for his people for 40 years as they wandered through the desert. This feast was commanded by God in Leviticus chapter 23. And so the people, after hearing the law of God read in, the, uh, in front of the water gate there in the temple complex, uh, or, or inside the city, excuse me, would remember the kindness of God who brought his people back to their homeland again. It's no secret here that the word of God, rightly understood, leads to the worship of God. There's a pattern there that we should see. And I pray that as a pastor who does most of the preaching here, that each time I open the word of God among us, that I would give the sense so that we all may understand and respond in worship. What about you, brothers and sisters? Some of you have been gifted as teachers and have the responsibility to teach the word of God in small groups and in other opportunities here in the church. From the book of Nehemiah, we are reminded of the great power of God's word when his people understand it. And so if worship is the first way to apply God's word here in Nehemiah and several places throughout scripture, how would that change then our teaching? What if our teaching of God's word was meant to bring people to worship rather than to make them more confident to face tomorrow, uh, rather than to make them more able to balance a budget, rather than to give them life skills? What if our teaching of God was meant to inspire worship in the hearts of those that we are teaching? How would that change the way that we lead? How would that change the way that we teach? As we teach, do we want the result to be people praising us for how great a teacher we are? Oh, how I'm tempted this way, church, and I pray that you would pray for me. I, like any man, love a good ego trip. I like, my, my flesh likes when people come up to me after a sermon and say, good sermon, pastor, good, good message, Stephen, good word today. That makes me feel good about what I have done I have this sinful disposition in me the same as anybody else would. Pray for me that my response or that that my goal in teaching, that my goal in preaching would not be for people to say, good job, Stephen, but for people to be led to God in worship, led to worship Christ, our Redeemer. Would you pray that the right worship of God would be the point of your teaching and leading as well if you've been tasked with uh, with this service in the church or elsewhere? Would you pray that your teaching, that your leading, that your preaching and proclaiming of God's word would not lead to people being enamored with what a good teacher you are, and not even lead to people being more prepared for living life tomorrow, but that your teaching would lead people to worship the God that they have encountered in his word. Godly leaders lead with God's word. Fifth, we learn that godly leaders confess their sins. It was about three weeks after Ezra's day of preaching and Nehemiah's worship leading that the people gathered together with sackcloth and ashes. This was the typical garb of sorrow for sin and repentance. We see it in several places uh, in the Old Testament. And there, as they gather for another half day, they read from the law and confess their sins and the sins of their fathers that led to their exile in Babylon. 
Then in chapter 9, the Levites, not Nehemiah this time, lead the people in a uh, lead the people in a corporate prayer of repentance. You can find this in, in really all of chapter 9. All of chapter 9 is a, is a long prayer of repentance. It's a long prayer. It's a detailed prayer. They acknowledge the sovereignty of God. They recall the original promise of God to Abraham. They uh, remember the miracle of the Exodus where God brought them out of slavery with a strong hand and a mighty arm. They recall the giving of the law there at Mount Sinai and what a great, uh, what a, what a great word that was for them and, and how it set boundaries around their relationship with God. And then they confess their people's, uh, their, their own personal generation of sinfulness. We read uh, all in chapter 9, verses 1 through 38, but I'll pick up in verse 16. Here in their prayer, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you, speaking to the Lord, have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Continues in verse 35, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in, large, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests." Confession is hard. Detailed confession of sin, like the people of Israel are doing here in Nehemiah chapter 9, is especially hard. Admitting that we have done wrong, and not just that we have done wrong, but admitting specifically the wrongs we have done, the ways that we've sinned against God and against others, requires an intense amount of humility to do so privately. It's, it's hard enough to confess in a detailed fashion your sins to God in your own prayer closet requires a lot more humility to do so publicly like these leaders do here in Nehemiah 9. And yet confession and repentance is absolutely necessary if God's people are to be reformed in their hearts and in their lives to honor and glorify God as we were made to do. Repentance and confession of sins is necessary. If the people of God are to truly be His people, they must reflect His holiness, His character, And this they can only be if they are willing to confess their sins. We can only hope to reflect the holiness of God if we are willing to confess our sins. If we are willing to seek His forgiveness, and if we are willing to live repentantly, God's people need examples of this sort of repentance. And those who will lead from the front as models in this way. God's people need models of confession and repentance. And that is partly what godly leaders do. Godly leaders help the people of God confess their sins by modeling it for them. The good news is in Christ we have an even greater leader, greater than Nehemiah, greater than these priests, greater than these officials and nobles, and even greater than Ezra. 
One who by his own sinlessness did not need to confess any sin, did not need to repent of any sin, but who, even as he hung on the cross to die for sins, prayed for those crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. It is true that when we sin, we are blinded by sin to its abiding and dangerous consequences. And even worse, we sometimes acknowledge the danger of sinning, but choose to ignore it and go on sinning anyway. But praise be to God that there is forgiveness in the name and by the work of our sinless Savior, who himself did not need forgiveness, did not need to confess, did not need to repent, but who instead died and rose that we may have that grace, have that forgiveness. Godly leaders confess their sins and they lead their people to do so as well with faith in Christ who forgives them. Sixth and finally, we see in the course of Nehemiah that godly leaders keep leading Godly leaders keep on leading. Now, the job of leadership is never really done. Anybody in any sort of leadership position, whether it's at work or in the church or in the school or just at home, you know that leadership is never finished so long as there are people that are under your care. And godly leaders keep on leading. After the wall was rebuilt and after the worship of the people was reformed in the course of Nehemiah's leadership, Nehemiah returned to the Persian capital. Uh, He was still cupbearer to the king after all. And after a period of time, he went back um, uh, back to Jerusalem to check on how things were going. And he gets back to Jerusalem, and this is here in Nehemiah chapter 13. And there, when he gets back to the city, he finds his old nemesis again, Tobiah, that guy who was throwing verbal assaults, who was planning attacks, who was conspiring to maybe even have Nehemiah murdered. He finds that Tobiah, that guy, had been given an apartment in the city of Jerusalem near the temple. In fact, it was in a room that previously held the tithes that were paid to the Levites for their livelihood in the temple. And because Tobiah is living in this apartment that used to be a storeroom for the worship implements and the things that were needed for worship in the temple, um, the the, the Levites have have been robbed of their livelihood. The Levites were not allowed to own land. They weren't allowed to work the ground for a living. They relied upon the tithes and the gifts of the people to make their living. And now Tobiah, that guy, is living in the apartment that stored their livelihood. Worse off, the men of Israel have gone off in like the five minutes that Nehemiah is gone. The men of Israel have gone off and married foreign and idolatrous women from the people around uh, Jerusalem, around Israel, who stood to steal their hearts away just as Solomon's many wives had stolen his heart away from the Lord. So Nehemiah, after all that he had done, leaves for a hot minute to go check on things in the Persian capital and comes back to this dumpster fire. Now, if it were me, I would have been tempted to throw my hands in the air, say a few choice words, maybe under my breath, and head back to Persia, never, never looking back to Jerusalem. Forget these guys. I'm done. Nehemiah is a better man than me. He doesn't do this. Nehemiah sticks around, and he keeps on leading. He has to make some decisive action. He has to do some hard things. He first evicts Tobiah from the temple storeroom and he restores the livelihood to the Levites. He, he, he tells the people to bring their, their tithes and all the other things that were due to the temple for the, the livelihood of the Levites who were serving there uh, in the temple complex. And he confronts publicly these foolish men who married these idolatrous women against God's very clear command. He says, enough of this. So we read in chapter 13, verses 30 and 31, the end of Nehemiah. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign 
And I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. And Nehemiah closes. Nehemiah was a good leader. Nehemiah was a godly leader. He is a leader who kept on leading. He is a leader who presses those under his care to greater and higher forms of godliness and faithfulness to their Lord. But Nehemiah is not still leading today. He was a good leader, but like all human leaders, Nehemiah died. There was an end to his leadership. The persistent and godly leadership of Nehemiah points, though, unflinchingly to the persistent need we all have for a leader who won't quit. For a leader who will take and transform us and make us able to reflect God's holiness in increasing manner day by day and year after year, like Nehemiah, but so much better. And of course, you know just who this leader is. The leader that Nehemiah points to is none other than the eternal Son of God, the immortal risen Savior, Jesus the Christ. He's not only the one who leads us to godliness, but who is our great high priest who intercedes for us in God's very presence. We have been seeing this time and time again as we've been in the book of Hebrews, haven't we? So I turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 through 28, where we read that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. For the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Nehemiah was a godly leader. He's a man of prayer, he's a man of resilience, he's a man of compassion and care. He's a man that points the people of God to the word of God. He's a man who keeps on leading, irrespective of how hard the conditions for leadership may be. And as great as Nehemiah is, there is one still greater and far greater than him who leads us, not just to greater forms of godliness, not 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 just to better manner of living, but one who leads us to the very presence of God. This man, Jesus the Christ. Fully God, fully man, who gave his life for sins on the cross and rose from the dead, who by his teaching points us to the true spirit of the law of God, that it might be written on our, our hearts and, and that we might know it and point one another to the Lord daily. This one who inaugurates a new covenant wherein God remembers our sins no more. We all need a leader like that. And praise God that he's provided just such a one in his own son, Jesus. Let's pray together.